This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. Hello, friend. I'm Jeff Gibbard, and this is my podcast, Shareable. I decided to call it Shareable because the conversations I have with my guests are so good, you got to tell someone about it. Shareable is a variety show of sorts where we talk about culture, relationships, leadership, dating, business, comics, marketing, art, sales, and more. Wherever the conversation takes us, one thing is for sure. This podcast is Shareable. Welcome back to Shareable. My name is Jeff Gibbard. I'm your host. You know my voice, but the voice you're about to hear is an entrepreneur, keynote speaker, and author named Lori Guest. And if you don't know who she is, she is the go-to resource for customer service excellence, and she's been doing it for more than two decades. Uh, She shares a practical point of view, which is one of the things I really love about the way that Lori frames customer service is that everything... It just makes sense. It's very practical. It's very easy to follow. And she just wrote a book called The 10 Cent Decision, How Small Changes Pay Off Big. Uh, And you're going to love a lot of the advice that you get out of this uh, conversation we're about to have because so much of it, it'll seem almost like those uh, duh type moments, but like at the same time, they're so rare to find in your customer service experiences. So uh, we're going to get started on this. Lori, thank you for being on the show with me. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Can't wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, as as I do often with uh, the guests that come on my podcast who have written books, I've spent some time reading through your book, looking through some of the things that you've done online. And your career is a super interesting one. And you've got a lot of anecdotes in the book about your history. So why don't we start by just going through a little bit of like where you've been so it frames up nicely why you are and you I like in your book, you even put like a why am I qualified to talk about this. So I want to start there just to give people some context, like who are you? What have you done in your career? Why should we trust you on customer service? Sure. Well, it's really interesting. When I started to write the book, um, I got stuck a couple times and I decided to do a writer's retreat. And it was a virtual thing. And the question that the leader asked on the virtual retreat completely changed not only my thinking, my writing, but even my presenting. And it was this simple, Jeff. She said, I want all of you to spend an hour answering this writing prompt, dear reader. That's it. That's what the prompt was, was dear reader. That's all she gave us. And so I sat down and I just right off the bat said, dear reader, why do you need another book on customer service? Hasn't everything that needs to be said about customer service already been said? And if you do need to learn more, why do you need to learn it from me? Why am I the one to deliver the information? And her instruction was you couldn't stop writing or typing for the hour. You just had to go, 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 which means it just comes off the top of your head. You don't worry about words being spelled right or your grammatical structure of your sentence. You just go. And what flew out of me immediately was the reason that I'm the one you should listen to is I have been a customer service expert since I was five. And as soon as I typed those words, I had the complete picture of what my book was going to look like because I was always an entrepreneur. So I started out riding with my dad in the combine and taking the grain to market. And then I moved my way up to selling sweet corn. And then I eventually worked in a deli as a teen. And then I went. And so each step of my career, I've learned stuff, whether it's from the people who employed me or the people I surrounded myself with. And eventually at the end of that really long story, I ended up in an eye care facility. I worked for an eye 
specialized surgeon. And we were so well known for customer service that people came from miles around for the experience. We even had a guy one time who said he wished he had a third eye so he could have surgery again. Do you know how good your customer service has to be for a guy wishing he's walking around with a third eye? And so that's what the structure of the book became as I tell very short stories of the time I was five all the way up until today. And that's kind of the beginning of each chapter, very short story. And then I unpack it a little bit. What did I learn during that phase of my life that could apply to you and your business today? I love that for so many reasons, not the least of which is that I'm writing a book right now and I frequently get stuck. And this exercise of just saying, dear reader, and giving myself an hour to do that, I'm going to use that. Thank you for that. Yes, I got to give credit. Kathy Fayak is her name. She's the coach. I should probably give her a shout out uh, because that was just, I mean, what an easy prompt, but it was tremendous because it starts to justify why you, Why, why should I even be listening to you? Yeah. Well, I want to dig on that a little bit. So I'm writing a book right now on leadership. And I had in one of my earlier drafts, a whole point where I was like, why should you even listen to me? Mm-hmm. That whole section was so incredibly uncomfortable, I think for the same reason. What can I write about leadership that hasn't already been written? Same thing as your customer service kind of situation that you put yourself in or, or that you thought about. What is it that we, you know, you wrote a great book. And Thank you. Uh, to to look at it and say like, to, to hear like, I've been a customer service ex- expert since I was five, it takes something to even say something like that, right? To give yourself permission to pass along your advice, your thoughts, your experiences, because I think we're all waiting for that kind of like, you are now anointed and good enough to be able to talk about this thing. I want to even dig into that before we get into all the other stuff we could talk about. How did you even you know, your writings, how did you even get to the point where you could give yourself that kind of permission? This is kind of in that fraud syndrome, imposter syndrome thing. You know, you're taking on a big topic here, customer service. It's big. We all interact with it in a capitalist society. How did you say I'm the one to help solve this problem and get over any of those humps where you're like, it's all been said? I love that question because I've been in this business for over 20 years. And I would say for the first 10, I kept saying, well, there's nothing I have to say that hasn't already been said. In fact, I even said that from the platform. I'm not going to tell you anything today that you haven't already heard. So I kept pushing myself down to, I'm not special. I don't have anything you haven't heard. Well, then why are they paying me to come in? Why would they possibly read a book on this if they've heard it all before? And my aha started to happen actually really slowly when people who are the official gurus, I'm not going to say their names, but people that you name recognize, household names as authors and people of position in this industry, and they'd get on the platform and I'd be all ready with my pen and paper thinking they're going to rock my world. And they would say some of the exact same things that I'm teaching, but they, they shrouded in their own story. And I'd heard this before, but when I first started to experience it, I realized nobody's got my stories. So the guru in customer service might have a similar point, but maybe their story doesn't resonate with an audience the way my story does. And so that's when I started to realize, why not me? And I I just, again, customer service has been the hook of my entire career prior to being an entrepreneur. And so if if that's uh, the one thing that I know for sure, then I consider that being expert. And I think that's really what what the conversation is, is how do we define the word expert? What does that really mean? And in my definition of it, it means there, I don't think that there is a customer service question that you could think up right now and ask me without any prep, without any warning, there isn't a question you can come up with that I don't have some kind of response or practical tool to get you started. 
I feel like that's what makes somebody an expert. The same way as if you were, you know, an expert sale, a sale person who can go sail. I don't know anything about sailing, but if I, if that's what you know, when I ask you a question, you immediately have all the answers. Doesn't that make you a sailing expert? I think yes. So I had to get out of my own head and just start to own it. Yeah, I've got this. I do know what I'm talking about, but it takes guts to be able to say, because it feels self-serving. We feel like we're puffing ourselves up and I just had to start to get over that. Yeah. And I think also the, the point that kind of naturally comes out of that, or I guess also a, a thought that could occur uh, for somebody hearing that is like, well, you could also just BS your way through it, but then there's also the side of what it's expert to who, right? So like, there's probably somebody else out there that knows as much as you and maybe like one additional thing that you didn't think of, right? So to you, that person is the expert. But to the vast majority of people that would come to you to talk about customer service, it's the whole expression to the third grader, the fourth grader as an expert, right? Um, so this idea that like, if you have knowledge, it's kind of like your obligation to share that and you have permission to share that. You just have to know who the audience is that needs to hear that information. That is so true. And I also heard a speaker one time say something that really resonated. He said, um, what is it that your friends and family come to you for? Like what, 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 what resource are you bringing to the table where they say, oh, I've got this issue. I'm going to call Jeff. I've got this issue. I'm going to call Lori. And in this workshop, it was then when the speaker asked that question, I thought about it. And I realized almost all of my friends come to me when they are anticipating a difficult conversation with somebody and they don't have the right words. And eventually I realized words were my friend and that I am really good at taking an awkward situation and molding the words so that you can at least get started with that employee, with that loved one, with that family member, whatever it is. And I thought, wow, I thought everybody could do that. And it wasn't until a friend of mine went, oh my gosh, you are the best at this, that I realized that not everybody has that word uh, wisdom or, or uh, what it would be word whisperer, I guess. And so I started to build on that and words have become my friend. That is amazing. And, you know, I prepare for all of my interviews with, you know, finding things that I have in common with my guests and things that we may disagree on. And one thing that throughout reading your book, I would say one of the things that just hit me in the face like a brick was how much you and I agree on the importance of words. And not just like words important because words communication, but like the selection of the exact word that you choose that you might flippantly just choose one word over another the exact word you use matters. It changes how people receive your information. In my last company, I spent probably 20% of my time just rewriting and reviewing people's emails so that the way that somebody would receive that email, the way that the words would strike them once they received it was different from what was the the original version of it. So you Absolutely. Have, yeah. and, it, and it's so yeah. simple. I mean, let's say that you wrote an email to me today and asked if, let's say we could connect by phone this week for something. And I write back and say, no, Jeff, it's a busy week. I can't do that. Okay. So that sounds like, wow, you're not important. Whatever you want to talk about just doesn't fit on my radar, blah, blah, blah. If I change it around and say, actually, Jeff, the next time I can hop on the line with you is Tuesday around two. Does that work for you? You receive that totally different. You don't need the excuses why I can't do it this week. You're much more interested in the fact that I want to meet up with you. So the word difference there is so subtle and they're not fancy $15 words. They're elementary words. It's the order in which you put them and how positive are they? Yeah, and I love so much of, um, and we can talk more about this, but um, you know, it, let, me, let me see how to frame this up. You've been in business longer than I have. And I think that 
there has been traditionally more of an emphasis on formalized language. And you eschew some of that by suggesting a less informal tone at times to build connection. I'm curious how you broke into that when the, the kind of traditional common wisdom was, you know, professional tone and sincerely and warm regards and whatever. And you, you take that, um, what was the character's name in your book that you, you it was like Debbie or someone you, you, you called it like, or Brittany, or there was somebody who's, who was like very informal and you like likened the tone to that. I forget what it was. Yeah. I don't remember. I used yeah. the lot. I changed all the names in the book. So then when somebody asked me, I can't remember, I yeah. can try to tell you who the real life person is, but not the name I used in place. Well, I'll tell you, I learned a lot of that from my father. So my dad grew up in, and so did I in a 1300 person town in Northern Illinois. And my dad knew everybody, born, raised, and passed away in that same town. And so my dad had what I like to refer to as a backyard sound to his voice. And I watched and didn't realize I was learning at the time that you actually can make a lot of progress with vendors that you're working with to have that backyard sound to your voice. So, so I'll give you an example. When I call the place where I get my uh, car serviced, if my husband calls, he comes from a very formal family and they use formal sentences. So he would sound uh, very stilted and not connected. And the guy might tell him the next opening is next week. But when I call and the guy answers the phone, I'm like, hey, Adam, Lori, got to get the CRV serviced. What you got for me? And he'll say, hey, I can get you in tomorrow morning at 730 right? It has this air of familiarity. And my husband can make that same call an hour before and not be given that same opportunity. So it's just a really simple example. And I use the same thing with clients is that if I've made a connection with you, I, I, I judge what type of person are you? If you're the one that wants the formal sentences, I'm going to change my language style to meet what you need, match to what the listener wants to hear. But like you're an informal guy. So like I can pass you an event, go, hey, Jeff, what's up? Do the high five thing. We have a connection. And I think that I learned that that early on watching my dad use the right language and especially that backyard sound uh, to get what he wanted. I love this. So um, uh, are you, do, do you know Phil Jones? I do. Okay. So Phil wrote the book, Exactly What to Say. and Fantastic uh, yeah. book. I've read it twice. I have yeah. it on my shelf well, right now. <laughs> and what, I'm, what I like is that there's sort of a... Um, there's a connection here in the sense that what we're talking about are very simple changes. They're small changes, changes in words, changes in tone, and all of those small changes make a big difference. And I think that if I were to read into what your book is about, it's that to make these massive changes are very, very small, cumulative, but small decisions that you have to make to make things a lot better. And actually, Phil talks a lot about in his stuff how if you do these things, it might make you 10% better. And 10% better is a massive impact for most people. So this, this whole kind of like little things matter and they, you know, the little bit of extra efforts kind of all bundle up is a commonality. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the specific examples that you give in the book, whatever you're willing to give away here for people. I sure. still obviously, no matter what we talk about, strongly encourage people to pick up the book and uh, go through it. Whether, you're, whether you think you're in a customer service role or not, I think understanding customer service is valuable even in your personal relationships because the principles I think are the same. But but you, you talked, you gave an example just before about no, which I thought was a really uh, interesting one in the book. But the one that really struck me was sorry. Everybody says that. I can't tell you how many audience members say to me, this little bit, which takes me about seven minutes on stage, is life-changing for them. And I think somebody out there is writing a whole book on this. So once the book comes out, then it'll look like I copied them. But yeah, I'm all about the stuff you're sorry is in a sack, man. Just to stop. Because 
the initial impression for me was that I actually think there's an immense amount of power in apologizing. And I don't think you yes. would disagree with that. But what I think the way that you conveyed it was really nice was that you kind of said like, kind of save your sorries, like make sure that you're using them at the right time. And I think, it, you know, I'm a white male. So my experience in this life has been a particular one. But what I have noticed in coaching my female teammates is that there is a lot of apologizing that happens that's conditioned in that I try to work with them to, to get rid of that and to, to feel confident and move forward and be able to use different language and kind of save their sorry for the right moment your entire thing on it is really fabulous. So I was hoping that you could just kind of riff on it for a little bit. Talk sure. a little bit about what we're doing with the word sorry in customer service, in sure. any area of business, and why it's so important that we're more discerning about how we use it. Yeah, exactly. I love this topic. Um, I think that sorry became the automatic go-to even when we don't mean it. So again, my company has a division where we do secret shopping. And I notice this a lot when we shop. So let's say I'm shopping a bank. I may be the very next person in the teller line and I wait no more than 10 seconds for the customer in front of me to move aside. And when I step up, the first thing the teller says is, I'm sorry for your wait. Okay, they've defaulted. They don't really mean sorry because they're just doing their job. They were taking care of another customer. Why are we saying sorry all the time? So I try to teach the fact that there are two times when I really do want you to use sorry. We need to talk about that first. The first time you should use sorry is when you owe me an apology. You guys messed up. The order didn't come in. It came in wrong. You cut off the wrong limb in surgery. I mean, when there is a mistake made, I need to be validated by hearing the word sorry. So, so that absolutely say sorry. The second time is a true show of empathy. I'm sorry you're going through this. I'm sorry this is happening to you. I'm sorry you've had this fire. I'm sorry you lost your parent. Whatever that sorry is, but it better really be in the moment and genuine. So those are the two times you get to use it. Now we're going to push that aside. All the rest of the time you're saying sorry, you need to decide whether sorry is what really needs to be said. So a couple examples I have. I show a picture of a sign at one of my local uh, well-known electronics stores where you go to buy most of your electronics. And the sign says, um, sorry, this register temporarily closed. Now the sign is engraved, they sent out for it, they've been using it for four years, there's nothing temporary about it. They move it to whichever register they don't want to currently use. They do not owe me an apology for that. So simply changing the sign to, we'd be delighted to help you at one of our open registers, completely changes the feel on that. Uh, same result, you're not checking out on lane four, but the feeling is different. Yeah. You know, and so I go on with all kinds of examples of how people are doing it. And we need to, the people who are listening to this podcast, not only the sorry that comes out of your mouth verbally, but what about your outgoing voicemail? Hi, this is Lori. I'm sorry I'm not here to take you. Are you? Are you sorry you're not there to take the call? That's a waste of 10 seconds when you apologize and then tell me what to do with the beep. That's 10 seconds I'll never get back. I encourage people use that 10 seconds to create any kind of connection to your buyer. So whether it's to promo a new special you have going on, whether it's to add some humor, I try and put humor in whenever I can. Creativity plus humor equals connection. So if I can have an outbound witty message, that's better for my business than just, I'm not here, sorry, leave a message, doesn't make any sense. And also in our emails. You know, do you say, I'm sorry I wasn't in this afternoon, or do you change it to great news? I'm back in the saddle this afternoon. Let's try and talk before the end of the day. So, if you start looking at all the places you see sorry, you'll be amazed. And when I do ask my audiences, how many of you are sorry, Sachs? It is amazing how many people raise their hand, and it is almost always completely female. So, back to what you said in the beginning, somehow this must be a conditioned thing early on by our gender. And we just need to, to stop saying sorry because it doesn't make the situation better. And we really don't believe it. It's white noise words. 
Yeah. Oh my God. It, and that's so true. By the way, my voicemail, I, I have to, at the end of this podcast, have you just call and listen to my voicemail. I always, <laughs> I've been doing this since college. I always make sure that my voicemails are totally ridiculous. Um, so the one that I had, the one I have right now is, is like, a, it's like a newscaster, like this just in Jeff Gibbard, not available. And it's like, Oh, great. But I did one. So my company is the superhero Institute and I'm thinking about bringing this back, but uh, did you ever watch the old Batman, uh, sure. show, Adam West, you know, sure. I was like, tune in next week. Will our hero be? So that was actually my voicemail. Jeff Gibbard, unable to answer the phone. Is our hero in trouble? Tune in next week or leave a message at the, <sighs> and I consistently get feedback on my voicemail that like people will actually leave voicemails and you know, most people just hang up and text you. Most people will leave a voicemail and they're like, that is, that is the best voicemail I've ever heard for somebody that is supposed to be a professional. That's been great. I have a great story. Do we have time for a quick story? Yeah, I love this. Love okay. So this is my all time favorite outbound voicemail. By the way, I change mine every day. So it will say today is, and then day, day of the week and time. So that way it's staying fresh and people should check their voicemail because sometimes you go away on July 4th and here it is, you know, later in the year and you still have your July 4th, I'm out of the office message. Right. And happens. so by changing it every day, I know that doesn't happen. So anyway, one of the things I like to do is look at what is the fun day of the year. So like other than major holidays, every day of the year has something like national yeah. look like your pet day, national margarita day, right? They have all these clever ones. And so if there's one that I can tie into my business, I do. So we're going to call it Tuesday, February 15th of last year. Let's just pretend and it was national Oreo day, you know, the fun sandwich cookie. Yeah. So my outbound voicemail message just said simply, hi, this is Lori Guest, professional speaker and trainer. Today is Tuesday, February 15th. And guess what? It's national oreo day so when you leave your message tell me your favorite flavor beep that's all it says so i get back from a day on the road speaking two messages on the recorder the first one guy who doesn't play he just leaves a boring message second one he's a bank president who'd been considering me for this very large retreat they were going to do he goes through his whole message it's boring as can be he's not going to play i'm really disappointed that my two callers are not buying in he gets to the end of the call and he goes okay Lori, i think that's everything oh yeah double stuff uh, and I just thought it was so funny. So instead of sending him a PDF of my proposal, I went to the store and bought two packages of double stuff Oreo cookies. I printed out my proposal on a really nice piece of paper, packaged it all up, FedExed it overnight. So the next day when he got to work, the Oreos are waiting for him. And I was up against two other speakers for that event. I know the other two speakers. They're excellent speakers. I don't necessarily beat them out in any category except my formula creativity plus humor equals a connection. What leads to sales? Connections. So a couple of days later, he calls up and I answer the phone and all he says is, well played. And that's it. So two packages of Oreo cookies and the cost of a FedEx box got me a really nice contract. And that outbound voicemail served me better than any, sorry, I'm not here could have. Isn't that fascinating? I love this so much because this actually speaks to kind of the bigger point that I was making earlier when I was saying, hey, if even if you don't think you're in customer service, pick up the book. Like that was sales right there. That was sales by way of a conduit of a social of a customer service experience. Your voicemail considered customer service, but it was a sales interaction you were dealing with. And you use the same principles you would use in a customer service setting to to win in that sales setting. So I I really think that this idea of it's great that your book is like focused and and is towards the goal of customer service. But again, I think so much of this would work. I, I have a side business that is an online dating consultancy. I help people learn how to win at online dating. So it, it makes more sense than it might sound on the surface. I've been an online marketer and my premise is that online dating is online marketing, right? So, in, so true. I, 
Yeah. Right? Where were you when I was 21? Oh, yeah, that's right. The internet didn't exist when I was 21. <laughs> it was like meeting people in real life, right? Yeah, IRL. exactly. But I think this same sort of idea would work really, really well. Maybe not, you know, stalking somebody and saying them something via FedEx, but the idea of like gathering information, uh, being clever, you know, taking advantage of opportunities to do something a little bit different and stand out. I, that's a lot of what I would recommend in the online dating uh, workshops that we do is like, how do you make yourself stand out amongst the crowd? And again, kind of going back to the the whole point you made earlier uh, about, you know, what could be said about customer service? Well, that's a story that nobody else could possibly tell. Right. You know, that is your story. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like the underlying point here. This all connects together. It does. And what is the difference between customer service and sales? When you really think about it, we think of customer service as the after or during sale experience. And we think of sales as entice you to want to buy from me. And I feel like they all roll up together. And sales and customer service, I mean, I think they're twin sisters. You know, we can identify them differently, but they really have so many of the same characteristics. They become really one conversation. Yeah, totally. Do you know uh, Joey Coleman? Uh, I you, do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wrote the book, uh, Never Lose a Customer Again. And and in his, he talks a lot about how like there's that process from sales to customer onboarding to client experience, the whole thing, and makes a lot of the same sort of points. And I, I think that you're you're kind of both on this exact same uh, wavelength there with just that these principles are going to apply through every aspect of the business. Well, um, and to carry it all the way through, we, we just uh, finished with our second kid going off to college. And this is my perfect example of this. Colleges, universities spend so much money in the sales process. The postcards, the leader letters, the invite you to visit, the fancy brochures, they do it all on the front end. And then the second that you've left that department and you're really serious about coming and being a student, we've never heard all that fancy stuff again. It's like they don't continue the customer service sales all the way through till we get to graduation. And, and that's one thing that that's one industry I would really fault them for that. You can't just do it on the front end and leave it at the doorbell. You've got to come all the way into the house. I think it's bigger than that, though, just because it, what we've been talking about, if we really like boil it all down, right, this is emotional effort. You yes. can't rubber stamp this crap. Like you can't just make the process new because then it loses all the magic. Like you couldn't, you couldn't just have all of your same voicemails and you just, you know, follow a script to it. Like what makes it special is that you're putting in that emotional effort. That's the creativity part. You can't really cookie cutter that. So that is, that's not just customer service. It's, it's sales, it's marketing. It's all the things is I think com companies looking to scale and typically scale requires that you remove the element that's not scalable and emotional effort, I don't think is scalable the same way that you can like print multiple brochures, right? Wow, that is a really good point. Uh, next week, that's going to be my idea. That is really smart. I hadn't thought about that. Because if I was dealing with a 1000 clients versus the 60 I do per year, I wouldn't be able to do that. That's, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And, and I mean, <sighs> that ties down to like, you know, your, your background, the whole, like the backyard voice of your dad and everything. There's a book written by, I think it was Becky McCray called small town rules. And there's a lot of these ideas around, like, I, I was thinking about writing something called only the small survive. And I know that there's a, a company culture book that's about this, but this idea that like, when you scale up, you hit a certain point where you can no longer provide that level of customization and care and emotional effort. And I think that's, you can't really do the little things at scale. Like how can a company, this is actually an interesting thing that I hadn't even thought of as I was reading your book. How can you take these extra emotional efforts and these creativity and all of these little things that you have to do, these 10 cent decisions as you call them, and how do you scale that for a company that's trying to provide that to a mass number of people? 
Well, I think we can look to some of the companies who's been who have been very successful at doing it. And so one of the first that comes to my mind is the and I don't know if I put it in the book or not. I don't think I did. But Chewy, the the food uh, online food store where you know you can order dog food or cat food or whatever, and they have a universal policy. I understand is is that show of empathy when somebody's lost a pet. And I saw on Facebook right about the time I was writing the book, there was somebody who had lost a pet right after they had ordered the food, like two huge bags of the food. So they wrote to Chewy asking if they could return it for a refund, saying that they'd lost this pet and, and how it turned their family upside down. And Chewy has this policy. They wrote back and said, no, actually, you cannot return the food, but we do want you to donate it to a local shelter. We have credited your account the full amount. You credited your charge card the full amount. And then a couple of days later, fresh flowers arrived on the doorstep. Oh, God. So now that just gives me chills to retell it. I have no proof the story is true. Again, this is social media right story. What's that? Again? choked up right there because I immediately yeah. thought like when I lost my pet uh, and like how devastating that was. If yes. I had gotten flowers from the pet food or my vet or anyone, I would have just lost it. And never gone anywhere else. And so there's an example where they are not doing this to manipulate you into sales. I assume they're doing it because whoever runs that company believes in our love for our pets. And the idea that they give full credit to the account, everything they could have done right is there. That is an example of scalable because it must be a company-wide policy. That wasn't just Janie, the person who took that customer service email making that choice. She has to have been empowered to do it and the company must stand behind it so that whether that email was received by Janie or Joe, that, that client would have gotten the same reaction I'm assuming. Now that's where things start to break down when we we have policies and procedures and people go renegade on it. Sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. That's the problem with scale is that the bigger it gets, the more people we have on board and we need that consistency. Yeah. And and I want to talk a little bit about the kind of the scripting versus being present, which I know mm-hmm. is another aspect of your book is kind of like there's the script, but then there's like, how do you deviate from the script? Um, but even within that, I, I want to pause on that because a thing that I'm thinking there, and this is a topic I've talked about on some of my other podcasts, which is I'm curious to get your take on it, because that is a really heartfelt kind of like loving act by the brand. It can appear very kind and very thoughtful and all of those things. But at the same time, you think, well, they're donating, they're asking her to donate it to a shelter. Great. Crediting the account. Great. But her going to a shelter, would she potentially pick up another dog and then maintain as a Chewy customer? So like there's always in the back of my mind when I think about altruism from companies is, is, isn't there always behind it some sort of a profit-driven decision that's being made to try and keep that customer? And I guess, is that a problem? Or is it all right that like, at, at least at the very least, we would want them to be that way rather than an alternative way in that sort of a scenario. So mm-hmm. I guess the question is around like, how do, you, yeah. how do you balance the fact that any decision you're trying to get a business to make, especially as it relates to customer service, has to feed kind of two masters. On the one hand, it can't, it can't just go and fly in the face of profitability, but it also can't, it, so, so it can't just be like purely for the good of your heart, but at the same time, um, how do you get people to authentically connect and care if at the end of the day, maybe what it comes back to is this is how we keep a customer? 
You know what I'm well, saying? Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And in the perfect scenario, right, it feeds both, just like this Chewy example does. I want to believe, and again, I don't work there. I don't know anybody who does work there. So I don't know if this is true, but I want to believe that the core leaders of that organization feel from their heart that this is good for the customer and good for their bottom line. So everybody wins. I think when we start tilting it the other way and we become manipulative in our behaviors is when bad things happen. And that's the same with relationships. If you and I are friends, but I manipulate a behavior, that's not a true friendship. That doesn't, that doesn't reward both of us. And so um, it's an interesting question to look at because I bet we could find examples uh, of organizations that have done it to benefit themselves and they've tried to cover it up by looking like it's a grandiose gift when it isn't. Uh, we, we just recently watched a Seinfeld uh, episode uh, where it was all about George giving out Christmas gifts. I don't know if you were a fan of the show, but he gave out Christmas gifts, but it was to a fake charity. So, you know, $1,000 has been given to the, the human fund in your honor, right? Oh, so it's yeah, all, yeah, it's all selfish. It, it had nothing to do with the charity or you. It was about him not having to spend any money on Christmas gifts. And it, it goes back to who's the core in that case, it's a character, but the core of the person and what's their true uh, desire. What are they really trying to achieve? Yeah, interestingly enough, this morning, actually, I checked in on my Amazon account and I use smile.amazon.com, okay. which allows, it, it basically takes like 2% or something like that of everything you purchase and it donates it to a cause that you choose. I didn't know about that. Interesting. Yeah, pretty cool. Like, and there's actually a Chrome plugin where anytime you type Amazon, it'll redirect you there. So you pick your, your thing. And for me, homelessness is a big cause of mine. I'm, I'm very uh, concerned with, you know, helping in any way that I can, right? So I give to Project Home. Um, at least that's where I've traditionally been giving it to. And I think I racked up some, some like a, I don't know, couple, couple hundred dollars, I think, over the course of the year that went to Project Home. And I thought to myself, who's getting the tax benefit of this? That was my initial thought when I looked at it. I was like, so it's nice that Amazon is giving me the opportunity to do that and feel somewhat good about all of my purchases. But at the end of the day, it's a tax write-off for them. So is it really altruism or is it just kind of good PR? Interesting question. You know? I don't know the answer to it, but like I think a lot depends on how you feel when you're using it. So prior to debriefing it, in fact, I even made a note here to check it out because I wasn't familiar with it. When you first started describing it, I thought, oh, how nice, how wonderful, makes me feel good. Like you said, that a portion of what I'm spending is going to help somebody else. And so I think the answer lies in how do I feel when I uh, use this benefit. And if you're clicking on it thinking, well, this is just a text right off for Amazon and we're feeling negative, then it doesn't work towards what they want. I think part of it is that I just feel conflicted about it. I want mm -hmm. as much money as possible to go to this cause. Sure. But it, it's not the, I feel like it's a little bit of both, right? Like I'm glad it happened. And if I have the choice of spending on Amazon and they don't donate any money or spending here and then they do awesome. Uh, but it's not like out of the good, it's sort of, I'll give you an example that I think is, is probably more widely seen, right? Like for every like this tweet gets, we're going to donate a dollar to this food bank. I'm yes. like, why don't you just donate whatever your top amount is and we'll just like that post because it's great. Like, why does it have to be like, you've made it about you now rather than about what the outcome is. Which and is I, manipulation. That's exactly. you feeling manipulated to do something. So I guess the, the kind of going back to the Chewy example or going back to any of these examples of customer service and companies doing things is that I think the only time to me it ever seems like a truly selfless act is when it is actually selfless, right? Like, so if Chewy loses that money and, and like you see on their bottom line that there's a certain amount of money that they could reclaim by not doing that and they just do it because they're like, it is the right thing, then I'm like, okay, that's values right there versus it being a tactic, 
Yes, totally agree with that. Yes, I think that makes perfect sense. So what is, on that point then, so what is your process then when you're working with a company and you want to try and figure out how to get them to understand what it, where their flex is to be able to serve that customer in a customer service experience? Do you, because this sounds a little bit almost like brand as a conversation instead of customer service, or I guess in a leading the conversation for customer service, because understanding what the company's values are kind of lead you naturally, I think, into understanding what their quote unquote policy should be or what their script should look like. Like what's your process look like? Mm -hmm. And actually, because I don't do any consulting work, I never go very deep into a company's brand or what they're trying to achieve. My work is much more, I keynote, I leave as many resources behind as I can, and then and then I go on, which is interesting because uh, I'm redesigning my website right now. And the person who's doing it asked me, what type of feedback do you get from your clients that proves that your stuff works? And all of a sudden, I realized this has just been the last couple of months. I'm like, I actually don't know that my stuff works because I've never gone back and asked them. And it brings this whole new conversation of what, what am I asking people to do and do I know that it works? I only know from experience it's worked for me. And so that's a change I'm making moving into 2020 is instead of my bumper sticker of get in, get out, get paid, what about get in, share, and find out how it's had a domino effect in the company? I think it would open my eyes to so many more things that people have done and changes that they've made. And so in answer to your question, I don't know that I specifically help companies say, okay, you're the ABC company, let's make this change and you'll have this outcome. My work is much more, let's get some consistency in the delivery of our service across all lines of the platform, not just the one who answers the phone, who greets you at the door, whatever their, their company model is, um, but that I feel good from start to finish when I engage with your company. And I think that's always interesting because sometimes the first few people you meet, they've had lots of customer service training and you're feeling good. But by the time you get to what I'll call the backside of the experience, the checking out, the paying, the being invoiced, the follow-up, whatever it is, those maybe those team members maybe have not had the same level of training or have the same level of interest because the income has already been achieved and been put on the books. Yeah. I also just want to, I want to pause on this point for a minute and put a pin in it to talk about because it could sound from what you just said as if like, well, we don't even know if this works. Yeah. Very, there's a lot of things that I, so in leadership, it's a similar sort of thing, right? So mm -hmm. in leadership, I can talk about, you know, if you don't make someone wrong for something and scold them for it, but instead think about how you can talk about where you're both going together, what both of your goals are, speak to their priorities, ask them questions, make them feel involved, let give them the conditions that they take ownership over whatever that thing was, you're going to have a lot more success. Okay, mm -hmm. well, where's the data to prove that? Well, how about this? If I make you wrong for what you just said by asking me that question, are you, are you receptive to what I'm about to say? And I'm like, well, of course not. So like, there's, there's certain things that like, you just know as a human being, like if your body language is closed off and cold, people aren't going to want to talk to you. Where's the data to support it? Where's the statistics that show that it works? Well, a lot of this stuff just is. We are human beings and we know how within a certain kind of framework, we have a general understanding of how people are going to behave and react. And you know that by being informal with some people, you're going to be able to build connection faster. You don't need to necessarily. So I guess what I'm saying is, I read through your book, and it would seem to me that what, what you're saying isn't there is just unstated. It's not that it's not, it's not that it's not there. It's just that you may not have explicitly said, here how all of these things come together and how you find those answers. 
maybe not like ABC company, this is what you do, but like read through this. And naturally, if you put yourself through this exercise and ask the discussion questions at the end, you're going to stumble upon how you should do it in your company. Absolutely. Thank you for re-clarifying that. I know the stuff works. What I don't have is I leave it at the door and I never go back. So let's say that, Jeff, you do two things based on this conversation today. One, you take the time in the next two weeks to answer the dear reader prompt and it completely changes how you write your book and your book becomes a bestseller, but we never come back and you say, Lori, remember the day on such and such a date when you said this, that was my turn. I may never even know that it was that that happened or the same way with the sorry. Somebody listening to this podcast, they really make the commitment. They're going to stop saying sorry. They're going to stuff them in a sack and only pull them out when they really need them. I'm never going to know who those people are. And so that's, what's interesting about the work we do. And, and I think it's true of all authors and even entertainers. They put stuff out to the, wor- to the world and they don't necessarily get the feedback unless they are researchers and they study stuff. And I just don't think I've done enough of that following up and saying, what did you do as a result? Because the thing that's interesting to me is the people that you know, know better and yet they're not doing it. So you'll show up at their organization and you'll hear them yelling at a staff member in front of customers. And you'll be like, didn't we just talk about this at the last retreat that we weren't going to do this anymore? And here you are doing it. That's what I'm thinking to myself. And so it's, it's an interesting thing about how we put it out there, but we don't necessarily know what's coming back. Well, yeah, because if somebody takes your advice or listens to it and implements it, then there's the, I don't even, you may never hear from them, you may not know that it made an impact. And then there's the people that hear it say that they understand it, don't implement it, and then still hold you accountable for it, which in my work in social media strategy, more often than not, I would build these big, beautiful, clear, simple strategies, and then the the strategy document would go on the shelf and never get implemented. And then they were like, why aren't we growing? And I'm like, well, did you do anything I said? So yeah, I I can totally see that. Um, It's interesting because I have two examples of things that I've recently implemented that have made a huge impact on my life, and neither of these people have any idea. See? Max in my life, but also neither of them would be quantifiable, right? Which I think speaks to, I think one of the the kind of drawbacks and challenges of the way that we tend to think about business. And and throughout my entire MBA, I felt like if it wasn't measurable, it didn't matter. If it didn't show up on a spreadsheet, it was something that was kind of irrelevant. And that was just the the surroundings in a business school kind of talk to you about that. But what I found in my time in business is that it's often the things that are not measurable. It's the little things. It's the things that they could never teach you in a curriculum, but they're just understanding how to interact with people that make all the difference. So two things that I've uh, kind of really gotten into lately that have made a huge impact for me, you may have heard of them, may have not. Uh, Mel Robbins, if you know who Mel Robbins is, she Mm -hmm. has a book called The Five Second Rule, and she's done a bunch of talks on it. And that technique, that thought process uh, has been hugely helpful for me getting out of bed and being able to motivate myself and behavior change, things like that. And then Donald Miller had building a story brand, which Mm -hmm. is I think one of the best brand frameworks I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's really helped me to be able to, um, you know, clarify brand messages and build out uh, campaigns for my clients, things like that. But neither of them would ever have any idea. So it's so interesting how many people are out there putting in the work, doing the research, building out frameworks, putting it out into the world, spending their time and energy on marketing and on sales, reaching people that they may never get a dollar from other than like the, the purchase of the book or whatever that are out there and their lives are then changed from that effort. And, and if that doesn't get you over the hump, I think of the imposter syndrome of the fraud syndrome, all those things to say, maybe I should just put my stuff out in the world, then I don't think anything will. 
Well, exactly. And nothing makes me happier than when people do circle back there, there, they will be people I don't know, or I don't recognize, and they'll catch me and, and say something made a difference. I had one conference that I spoke at 18 years in a row, it was in the I world, which was my expertise for a long time. And so every year, there were people that I'm not going to say they were fans, but they were people that they recognized me. And there was one year I was talking about this idea in leadership, where one of the first questions I think you need to ask yourself is, do you want to save the marriage? So you're working for me, we're having problems with you, you've been here 10 years, you have eight good years, in the last two years, you're fading, and we've done everything we can that makes sense for, you know, getting you back on track. And now I'm to the point where we have to make a decision, we either going to go tough love and whatever that means in this situation, or we're going to cut you loose. And so people are often in this scenario, and they would ask me questions from the audience about it. And I'd always start by saying, my first question I want to ask you is, do you want to save the marriage? And if the answer is, yes, then we're going to do the tough counseling, not literally counseling, but we're going to do the tough stuff we have to do to turn this person around. And so two years later, I'm in the bathroom at this event, washing my hands. And this lady comes up to me. It's so funny when they come up to you in the bathroom, right? And she comes up and she goes, Lori, I have to tell you something. Something you said two years ago completely changed my life. And I'm bracing myself for, oh gosh, please don't let it be. She left somebody like, don't let it be something negative. And so she repeated back to me everything I'd said about this, save the marriage, things that I didn't even remember saying. I think it was her interpretation of what I said, which is always interesting. And anyway, she goes, we had this troubled employee and I ended up deciding I wanted to the marriage and we turned it completely around and today and then she goes off into the story that this is a star employee and it would have turned out these are her words it would have turned out totally different if not for your lesson on that which now tells me we've got multiple dominoes the, the employee who was saved if they would have fired her think of the domino effect she couldn't pay her bills she had to find a different job she met totally different people like her whole rest of her life unfolded differently because they chose to save the marriage that's the stuff that is exciting in this work yeah, absolutely. I, that's so like heartwarming. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other things that I saw in the book that I thought were really, really cool concepts and um, some things that I had never quite heard posed in such a way. So uh, for one, I want to, I think a really interesting thing that you put in there was about over. So this idea mm. of people who are overly friendly or overly flirty or overly uh, enthusiastic or any of these different the overs. Yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> well, they're what the kids call extra. Yeah. <laughs> it's like people who are just, it's like a little, it's, it's a little much. And my first impression with people is typically over. So, um, <laughs> I'm well aware of it. Um, talk to me a little bit about first define what over means. Mm -hmm. And then I think the one that I want us to, to play a little bit with, I think that, that where it's most relevant, honestly, is I think women in business, will deal with this more so than men in business. And I think it's a good place for us to play a little bit, but the people sure. who are over related to their female colleagues or customers to their, you know, female employees that they're dealing with. Sure. The over friendly. So the definition of over means too much of something. So we've got our over researched. Um, I had a healthcare background. So those are the people coming in with a stack full of research and they want to tell you and the doctor what their diagnosis is and what treatment plan they need. Right. So that's our over research. We have our overbearing. Those are the people who are just so negative or they just keep going on and on about something. You can't figure out how to separate yourself from them. So we've got the, the over-research, the overbearing, and then the one that you want to focus on, the over-friendly. And the over-friendly are the people they are not doing anything wrong, but they're just there. And, they're, and they might be giving innuendos in their, in their language, or they might just be standing at your window at the dentist's office and they won't leave and you've got work to do. They're just, they're just over the line. And I don't necessarily mean in a movement where they've had inappropriate touching or something that's just obviously wrong. I'm talking about that. I can't really judge 
uh, if this is over the line or not. That's really what we mean by the over-friendly. And my big advice there, I know it seems simple, but a lot of people don't realize it, is uh, to step away from the situation. So let's pretend, again, I'm going to go with the doctor's office. I'm the receptionist, and Jeff, you're the patient. And you're acting like you want to ask me out, but you're not doing anything wrong. It has that kind of feel to it. I can just say, Jeff, it is always good to see you. You know, I need to step in the back. I got a couple things I need to do, but if you want to relax over here, they'll call you back as soon as the doctor's ready. So I've dismissed you from the scenario. And anybody listening who has this happen to them a lot should really practice a couple different sentences, not to sound scripted and robotic, but to have the words come easily off your tongue so that you're prepared for this if you know that that, that particular patient is coming in. Now, I have had a couple experiences in life where uh, the person working for me was the one that was getting hit, hit on, and we had to end up being more direct with the patient. So that's my second piece. If uh, removing yourself from the situation doesn't make it better, there may come times where you have to, what I call, draw your uh, line in the sand. And now it's going to sound more like this. I'm going to actually pull you away from where other people can hear. It's going to be just the two of us. Or if I felt really uncomfortable, I'd have a third person come with. So it's you, me, and another person. And I might say to you something like this. Hey, Jeff, and this is one of my favorite words, by the way, um, awkward. Awkward is a fantastic sentence starter. So now it sounds like this. Jeff, this is a little awkward for me to say, but when you come into the office and we have those long conversations at the window, I'm really not sure how to read you on that. And so I'm just gonna ask that from now on, when you come in, check in, we'll go over your paperwork. And then if you could have a seat, that would be great. Um, it's awkward to say, but I just feel I needed to say something. And then stop talking. It's what I call a hard period. Say what you have to say, put the period on the end. If I change that period out for a comma, Everything that comes after the comma is trouble. So now it sounds like this. Um, so Jeff, this is kind of awkward for me, but sometimes when you come in, I'm not really sure what, what, you know, what the, and I see how I'm putting a bunch of blah, blah, blahs in there. I'm not, I'm not forceful in what I'm saying. So now here comes the comma. Um, but if, if you don't mean anything from it, then no problem. I love our conversation. See, I haven't made any progress. You're right back at the window talking to me again. Yep. So I'm doing this off the top of my head, but if this is real life, we'd really craft this to get the right words to the scenario to let you know that what you're doing is not okay. You're being over-friendly and you've made me uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that's such an important point to be able to, and, and it's such a, um, such a fine kind of point to hit, um, to be able to say in such a way where the person doesn't take offense. And I think your setting it up is actually the key there. So that the use of the word awkward, great word to use there. Uh, and it, it aligns with the principle that um, when I was uh, at a consulting firm, they used to call setting up someone's listening. Uh, and it's something that I tend to use in leadership conversations, which is that if you know that you're about to have a conversation that's going to be challenging, it's going to be awkward, the person might feel defensive. The thing to do at the beginning of it is to acknowledge that, is to just say, hey, listen, this is going to be like kind of uncomfortable for me to say, and it might be a little bit awkward, but I have to talk to you about something that we just need to get it addressed. So here, I'm going to just come out and say it. And then you kind of say it like that so they know it's coming. Uh, you might feel defensive about this. That's not my intention. I just want us to have a good working relationship, right? So all of that setting it up kind of preps the person so it doesn't hit them like cold water in the face. So important. And I like to call that a vocabulary Rolodex. We just have a bunch of words ready to go that really tee it up properly. And if you've worked hard to build your Rolodex, you're almost prepared for any situation. So another one of my favorite words is I would be remiss. So, so here's another example people have a lot is when an employee has an odor problem and they don't realize they do. They're not taking showers enough. They're not using deodorant. I mean, how what a terrible thing to have to tell somebody. Yes. And so now it comes along the lines of this is extremely awkward, but I'll tell you, I would be remiss if I didn't share with you 
that several people have noticed or that we are beginning to notice, or I wanted to draw this to your attention. So the idea of I would be remiss means I don't have much choice. I would be not doing my job if I let you continue doing such and such behavior. And so I really encourage people just start working the words and what feels good to you. Again, not to sound robotic, but I've got these words ready to go in almost any situation to make it sound smooth. And in the moment, I got to use the right words with the right moment. And that's important. Yeah, uh, it's such an important point. Um, I think this kind of leads us into talking a little bit more about scripting, um, which um, when I was reading through uh, Tencent Decision, I was thinking a lot about it because I've, I've been going through this a little bit on my podcast where um, I, have a, I will look into my guests and I'll have a lot of things that I want to talk to him about. And then I'll have those questions off to the side. But then by having those questions off to the side, sometimes it begins to feel like a crutch and it pulls me out of the actual conversation, which is where the real connection happens. Sure. And it, whereas if I just kind of like stop and make this janky like left turn to something, it can sometimes feel a little bit more awkward. How do you thread that needle between having a script? I like to think of it as like almost like having a framework more so than necessarily having a script or a template. Um, how do you thread that needle between having a variety of different tricks in your bag, so to speak, versus having, because in, in sales situations, it's very common to say, here's the script, just read it. And of course that doesn't work. It's terrible. And it's just like a numbers game at that point. How do you go about explaining the, the balance between being scripted, having sort of a, a certain frame that you're following while also being able to stay present and stay in the moment? How do you remind yourself of both of those and, and keeping yeah. it? Great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. And that's a good one. Um, I use the word script so that people understand what I mean. I think most people in customer service and sales get what we mean when we say script. It means words that have been crafted already to get our message across. But what I really teach is what I like to call sentence starters. So I'm going to get you on the path you know what the right answer needs to be. This is what we have to accomplish. But if I can get the first sentence out of your mouth and it not sound robotic, but it's something that comes off your tongue easily, as I say, then the rest of your sentence, if you're good at what you do, you should be able to use in the moment words. So again, there might be times when the sentence starter is, um, you know, uh, something along the lines of this, this is something I, I uh, this is going to be a little awkward for me to talk about. However, that might be the sentence starter, but then after that, it's going to be, am I using that backyard sound? Am I using a more formal sound? Am I using a stern voice? Because that's what it takes to get you to understand as my employee that, that you're walking a thin line here. So it becomes in the moment behavior. And I don't know that that is common sense for everybody. I think some excel at that and others, they're just freaking out because they don't want to say the wrong thing or they're worried what the reaction is going to be. So um, I think that some of that is, is uh, ingrained in us in our communication skills, and some of it can be taught. So when you say, how do I thread the needle? If you are so scripted that you're robotic, then we don't, we don't have the right situation. Um, we want to make sure we pull that robotic out and put you in the moment. And that might come with experience and with uh, taking some hard knocks where you go, wow, that did not work. I will not use those words again. Do you think that everybody's capable of doing this then? Because I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is like, look, I'm a blaring extrovert, obviously. Um, and you, you uh, occur to me as being a fairly extroverted person, probably have right. no trouble in social situations. There are some people who are more introverted and they may be on the more shy side of introverted. I know some pretty extroverted introverts, but um, 
you know, there are some people who are going to be a little bit more socially awkward. When they read books on influence or persuasion, they're looking for like literally like what's the formula that I plug in here to connect with it. I, I think of someone like Mark Zuckerberg, right? Like there's a dude who looks like he has absolutely no capacity to connect with other people without thinking of it like a computer program. So is is customer service the kind of thing that anybody can do? You know, we we talk about scripting and kind of having sentence starters or whatever, but can that only go so far or is this a skill that you think everybody can learn how to do at all? I don't, I don't think everybody can learn this just like not everybody can learn to fly a rocket ship because they can't do math. I mean, I think this is a talent. I think it's a talent that you can develop if you're serious about developing it, watching those who do it well. But I really think that great customer service people, what they have in common is they really are in the moment. They're people, people. They're thinking about not just themselves, but how can they make the best experience for their customer? They generally are more on the outgoing side and they don't really worry about that. How do I want to say, don't worry as much about making mistakes. It's kind of like, Hey, I'm, you know, a, a free, free flow, a little bit more go with the flow, I guess is the words I'm trying to find. Those are the people who really excel. The people who are so introverted, they're scared to speak up. Um, I, I think that this is never going to be their wheelhouse and they might be better suited for a different role and not that frontline customer service. So I think personality plays a huge role in customer service. I also feel like it would be really helpful when we get to the sort of like, I guess what we could call like going off book. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you gave an example in the book, which I thought was um, a really interesting one because my wife actually is uh, fond of a, a company that does something similar. So you talked about how Domino's started doing this thing where they would draw pictures uh, in the pizza box, like if people requested it, right? Mm-hmm. So my wife is like an obsessive fan of the brand Teeks. I don't know if you're familiar I'm with I'm not familiar them. with that. So they're like a, a flat ballet slipper type shoe. Oh, they're okay. Kind of, my wife owns a bunch of them. She loves them. But they come in these like beautiful little teal boxes. They have teal bottoms on them. And you get a handwritten card typically with, I believe, each and every order that you do. And people will write in and say like, oh, my wife's a huge fan of The Little Mermaid. Like, you know, I'm buying these for her birthday. And they'll get back a drawing of Little Mermaid, right? But what what's happening there in both the Domino's example and in the Teak's example is that these are things that are sort of like, um, for lack of a better term, it's like playing in the sandbox, right? Like the business has said, you're allowed to do these things. And there's certain off book things that you can do, but here's like kind of like your guardrails. I guess um, every business is going to have a different tolerance for how much you can play within those. And then each customer service rep is going to have their own willingness and flexibility to play within that. How do you go about encouraging businesses to find, how do you encourage them to go about the process whereby they can find what those, what that sandbox is that they can play in so that they give people the ability to go off book or to go off script how do you keep it both in the in the guardrails while also letting people play within it? Great question. I think that the first thing has to happen is setting those boundaries, those guardrails. And what does that look like? How much empowerment do I have to make up an idea? So let's use this box signing as an example. If the story is true, I am assuming that somewhere along the line, Domino's higher up made the decision that yes, you guys can do this. Or is it just my dominoes? I don't think so. I don't think it's just here. I think they all were given the permission. Now becomes the question, what can we draw on the box? Yeah. Right? 
So if you're asking for an X-rated version of something and you're making the pizza, is Jeff allowed to draw risque things on the pizza box? Here's where I can see yourself getting in trouble where you have followed the company rule, we can draw things on the pizza box, and yet we didn't use common sense to say, let's not draw inappropriate things on the box. And that's what will take the rule away. The second that somebody somewhere complains because these five pizzas show up at a, at a boy's party and the mother freaks out because there's inappropriate stuff on the lid, she calls Domino's and complains, all of a sudden the entire policy will be gone. And so I, I think that it comes down to what are these boundaries so that Domino's has to think ahead to where could this go awry? And so the policy might be, we welcome you to draw anything appropriate on the box lids. Please do not accept the offers where people ask you to do something you shouldn't. Like we might have to actually teach it and say it and then allow them to have free reign inside. So here's my metaphor for this. I love to talk in metaphors because I think people really get it. And this is the, um, what do you call that? The uh, wireless or the fence. What do you call it for your dog? Where, you know, what's it called? Where you don't have a fence, but the dog knows not to run out. An electric fence usually, isn't yes, it? Yes, but yeah, but there's another word for it. Invisible fence. I couldn't find the word. This is like an invisible fence. When you first put it in, you put flags so that the dog realizes when he has the collar on and he runs past those flags, he gets a jolt of electricity that tells him don't do that, right? If we give a dog an invisible fence that's only one yard wide all the way around, he will get stuck in a box that is so small, he will go crazy. And on the same token, if we have an invisible fence that's five miles wide, he will also go crazy running all over inside the space. The secret becomes, it's let's say one acre. We have a one acre lot where my house is. If we put in the invisible fence in one acre, our dog's going to behave pretty well. He has enough freedom to run around, but not so much freedom, he goes crazy. To me, that's the perfect thing as a metaphor for empowerment. And that if you're a leader and you've told me where the boundaries are and I step over that boundary a couple of times and you just give me a little tiny zap. In fact, it doesn't hurt enough to change my behavior. I'm just going to keep kind of pushing them. And then one day you turn that voltage sky high and you almost electrocute me when I've stepped over the wire. Now I'm scared to move again. And I go back to that one you know, foot square space and I stand completely still and I don't do anything without permission because that zap hurts so bad that now I'm scared. So because you speak on leadership, you already know this but good leadership is creating those boundaries and staying what consistent with them so that I know where is that shot going to happen and I'm going to stop just short of it so back to the dominoes example if I care about my job and my company I'm not going to push the limits and draw risque things on the pizza box because you've already set pro a proper boundary but if you say hey sky's the limit you can draw anything you want you've given me that five mile boundary then don't be mad at me when I draw something appropriate on the box and a customer complains yeah no that makes perfect sense Mm -hmm. um, the title of the book being 10 cent decision, you know, we're talking about big decisions in, in, you know, the past several minutes, we've been talking about big decisions. Let's actually dial it in and talk about some small decisions. So I guess first question before we even get fully into it, you call the 10 cent decision. And I remember that was tied to something about the cost of what a water bottle might cost. <laughs> yeah. What are some 10 cent decisions that you've made recently that have made mm -hmm. all? Well, the way the title got started is one day I'm walking down the street with my 20 plus year old son and there was a dime laying on the ground and he stepped over it. I know he saw it and he stepped over it. And I said, Evan, you just stepped over a dime. And he's like, yeah, I know. And I said, what denomination has to be on the ground for you to stop and bend over and pick it up? And he said, at least a bill. 
And I said, you're kidding me. It has to be green. You will not bend over and pick up a coin. And he said, no. And then I always demonstrate to my audiences how much effort it takes to bend at the waist and pick up a dime, right? Almost zero effort, you know, for an able-bodied person that is no effort whatsoever. And when I asked him why, he said, because it's not worth it. Now, my husband and I have kept in a container every coin and bill we've ever found since we got engaged. So we just celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary and we have to get a new vase. We started out with a vase that's probably about uh, two feet tall and about at least a foot wide. It's a huge crystal vase. It's filled all the way to the top. And this year I had to buy a new one. So we found over $500 in the 28 plus years that we've been together because we don't step over the dimes, we pick them up. And my whole point is, is that when you put one dime, it doesn't mean much. But if I put one on top and one, when I have 10, it becomes a dollar. And when I have $10, it becomes $10. And on and on and on until Evan would never step over a $500, $100 bills, five $100 bills laying on the sidewalk. None of us would step over that. But because we pick them up one at a time, they accumulate to make a big difference. And so the example I use in the book is, is when I stay at a hotel. And if I spend 450 bucks a night to stay at a hotel, and then I get to the room and there's room temperature bottled water, and it has a tag on it that says, enjoy seven bucks, I'm not feeling the love. And so I looked it up and they can bring in semi loads full of average uh, brand water for about 10 cents a bottle. And they choose not to. They make a 10 cent decision not to do that. Yet they might have a turn down service. They'll put a chocolate on my pillow. They'll pay to somebody to pick up my dirty towels and give me clean ones. They do put emphasis on that, but not on the bottled water. And my point is, if we can stack these dimes, the little things that cost us little to nothing, we can make a big impact on the other side. So that's the backstory. When you ask, what are some of the things that 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 people can do. I'm going to answer about me in just a second. But some of the things people can do that cost you nothing is everything we've talked about today. The words you choose, the friendly factor, the being in the moment, and then customer service 101, the smile, the eye contact, the genuine interest, all of those things. There's so many companies that their front lines aren't doing this anymore, and it costs them absolutely nothing, yet they're spending a ton of money on all kinds of training, and they're missing just the human element of things. So that, that really is in the shortest way possible what, what the entire book is about. Um, for me personally, a couple of the 10 cent things that I've done this year that I know people appreciate and uh, people listening who aren't speakers or higher speakers may not understand the value of this, but there's one small thing I've started doing the last couple of years. When I land at an airport, you're the guy who hired me and you've got some huge event tomorrow and I'm your keynote speaker. You really need me to be there because if I'm not going to be there, you got to either do the speech yourself, which you're not prepared to do because you're not Jeff, you're some other guy. There's no way you want to do that or you got to hire somebody else. It's your nerve wracked until you know I'm there. So I tell them ahead of time, by the way, give me your cell phone number. When I'm wheels down, I'll text you and you'll know. And so I've started doing that where all it says is, uh, hey, it's Lori. I've landed in Des Moines or wherever I'm at, right? And I will see you at 7 a.m. in the morning as planned. And they so appreciate that. So here's my one up on this. I don't know if I can do this because I travel really uh, flat. My hair is flat. I got no makeup. I'm in jeans and sweatshirts. I am definitely the backyard girl, right? But I think this could work is instead of doing a text, I think I'm going to one up it, add a dime to it, and I'm going to videotape. So all I have to do is videotape and go, hey, Jeff, it's Lori. You know, I'm still on the American Airlines flight. I just landed. I just landed here in Des Moines. I'm going to look better than this in the morning. See you then, right? So I can do that humor, that creativity plus humor to create a connection. Zip that off to you and you watch the video. It's going to take our connection just one step higher, especially if you've never seen me. If you've only seen my photo shots on my website, it's not the same as seeing a human being um, right before you're going to meet them. 
And so that's that's a very simple, it'll cost me nothing to do it, just a little bit more time, and it's going to make a better connection. I love it because it's funny if you really think about a lot of these things, they're actually no cost decisions. In a lot of cases, they're either no cost or like you could actually make money from some of these decisions, the, the kind of net output of it. And I'm thinking like the use of video right there, brilliant idea. So often like we send an email, we don't even think about whether or not the email is going to create connection in business. We send so many of them. And yet if we took just a little bit more time and used that as an opportunity to create a little bit more connection, or we did a video message that went with it, or we just went that one little step above and beyond, that could result in client uh, retention. It can, you know, all sorts of different things that could actually come back to uh, make a positive impact on the business. And it costs you virtually nothing to do. So again, back to this idea that like, we're talking about little things that matter and add up. And I love the fact that you talked about all the change that you've kept that has actually added up into a substantial amount of money. Because mm-hmm. imagine if you were selling cars or you're a home remodeler, or any business you can think of where it's proposal based and I go away and think and then come back. Imagine if today you got a video from the guy that you test drove a car with yesterday and he says, hey, Jeff, it's Ron down at the blah, blah, blah place. I'm wondering what you're thinking about that car. Red looked pretty good on you. I'm going to be here all this week. And then da, da, da. something like that, you'd say, okay, Okay, I looked at four different car places and Ron's the only guy who sent me a video. It's that differentiator that would cost almost nothing to do. Yeah, it's just it the whenever we uh whenever I read anything about customer service and I see any sort of examples or any of the things that we've talked about, especially when it comes to like just changing a word or two. I wonder why more companies don't do this because business has been around long enough that you would think that the wisdom in these sorts of types of advice would be more well, well implemented at this point. It's, it's not like balance sheets and income statements are getting messed up all the time, but yet we are screwing up customer service time and time and time again. I mean, the one thing that I'm just constantly amazed by is that there are companies that make billions upon billions of dollars and they have like what, like seven call reps to answer phone calls from their entire base, mm-hmm. quite higher enough, things like that. Those those aren't 10 cent decisions. Those are massive decisions. But the people that they have on the phone, the fact that they will say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do, or it's our policy or any of that after they made you wait on hold for two hours, it just makes it that much worse. And I think a lot of what you're talking about are, you may not always be able to like the the Chewy example, you may not be able to bring this person's pet back, right? You may not be able to uh, take the food back from whatever, but you can find ways of making whatever that experience is that much better by doing a few little things and thinking from the perspective of that customer, putting yourself in their position, being empathetic, thinking about what, what would actually make their experience better. I just love the fact that like you've boiled it down into this idea of the 10 cent decision. Well, and I respect companies that think about what bothers us and change it. So I'm going to use Verizon Wireless as an example. When I go into my local store, it used to be that you walked in the door and you hope somebody noticed you and you hope that they took you in the order in which you walked in the door. Because I hate that when I've been standing there for 10 minutes and that person walks in and gets in in front of me. Well, in the last couple of years, they've changed that up. And now they have a manager level person who greets you the moment you walk in the door. They find out your wireless telephone number or your cell phone number. They bring up your account. They find out why you're there and you go in the queue. And they must put a code in there that describes you. I've always been scared to go, how are you describing me? Because there might be 10 people in the store and all of a sudden my person will come home to me and say, hi, are you Lori? And so they must put, you know, purple sweatshirt or whatever the person's wearing because they know it's me and, and they just come up and they, they, they start taking care of me. So two weeks ago, I walk into my Verizon place and before I can say a word, this guy who I do not recognize says to me, Lori 
Hey. And I'm thinking, I looked down to see if I had a name tag on because I'm thinking, how does he know who I am? He comes right over and I said, how did you know who I am? He goes, oh, I took care of you. I don't know. Was it last year or the year before? He goes, you're a professional speaker, right? You spoke on customer service. I go, you have got to be kidding me. And he goes, yeah, I'm really good with names. I had an instant connection with this guy. I took a selfie with him. I wrote a blog about him. I put him on my Facebook page. I mean, I made this big, huge parade around this guy. I'm sitting here today, I can't even tell you what his first name is. How terrible is that? But he could remember me a year or maybe even two years later. And I said, can you do that with everybody? And he goes, most people, if I've taken care of you, I can remember your name. Now that is impressive. I don't know how much that guy's making, but he needs a raise and he needs an even more important job. Here's what's interesting, Jeff. If he gets a, a promotion, he eventually will come off the floor and he'll go somewhere else in the company that's no longer on the front line. And that is what I think is our core issue. We hire frontline people at the lowest rate with the least experience and we groom them. And as soon as they get better, same thing happened in my career. As soon as I got better, I got moved to the executive level and then the CE, the C-suite level. And the, each level put me farther away from our core users. Why do we do that? Really, if, if, if I was running a, a shoe store, I would look for the very best and figure out how to put the very best on the front line and keep them there, but I've got to keep them happy because most people who start at frontline, they have their eyes on growing and getting away from the frontline. So we're just constantly churning people through with the lowest paid and least experience, put them on the phones, put them on the front line. It doesn't make any sense. And then you're also just constantly training new people and no matter how good any training program is, it's unlikely that you're going to consistently get the right person in that role that's going to follow it to a T, that's going to understand the company values and all that sort of stuff. It just seems like it would be real, really, really challenging uh, to keep that level of consistency up and, and even building a process. Like, let's say that guy has a process for remembering your name and your face and what you did. Even teaching other people, it's unlikely that you're going to get the kind of like buy-in and participation from everyone. And then, yeah, to your point, he's going to probably wind up in some other area of the company where he'll make more money, and that's good. But right. the, the special thing that he had is then lost. Exactly. And so when you ask the question at the beginning of this uh, little segment, we're asking, why don't more companies and then fill in the blank? Why don't they do this? What? And I think the reason is, is that because the people who are in charge of the decisions get farther and farther away from the front line. So back to my eye care days, one of the reasons I think that we were known as the, the go-to place for customer service is on your first day of employment, probably within the first two hours you were there, our owner um, and key doctor would come into the place where I was giving you orientation and he would sit and talk to you for about 15 minutes and he would tell you about the company and he would tell you the culture that he demands and the vision that he has for the company and his vision for you within the company. He would give you this and it was a spiel. I mean, I, I've heard it many, many times. It was the same thing every time, but it was very felt like it very much felt like he was talking to you. That he was making it about you. And so people felt a connection and they knew what they were expected to do. If we fast forward, the company is now owned by somebody else and things have changed. I'm making this up. I don't know if it's true, but my heart says that if I went in there as a new employee today, I would meet either somebody who's good at the position and it's train the trainer, or it's going to be somebody who's hired as an HR director and trainer. The odds of me actually spending time with the gentleman who owns the place now, I find it hard to believe that that culture exists. And therefore, the culture that goes or the image, the reputation that goes out to our community is totally different than when my doctor owned the place. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. It, yeah, 
I, I try to think of like, what is the solution to all of this? Because it just seems like that's kind of inherent to the nature of business, right? Like that as businesses grow, teams get bigger, there's hierarchies, we've tried other things, holacracies and flat management and all these different things. But at the end of the day, like people are moving up, there's cheaper labor at the bottom. And it, you know, it, it just seems like that's kind of inherent to the structure. So I'm, I'm constantly looking for like, what's the way to fix this, but I have no idea. And it doesn't, it gets into the, the thing I want to ask you about next, which was that, you know, we're, we're talking about all these different things, but I feel like there's probably even, we even uncovered it kind of at the beginning that there's a very different experience here between the way that men and women will experience this. And that's not even bringing into the fact that there's going to be uh, people of color that have different experiences, uh, people who uh, have different gender identities or sexual identities that, their experience may expose them to a variety of problems even above and beyond that that complicate these matters even further so it's it's so difficult to try and nail down like what's a simple solution um that said i really like the way that you're boiling it down to these small decisions of how we treat people a little bit more kindness a little bit more empathy a little more mm-hmm. thought creativity are things that are fairly universal. They may not be able to solve for some of these other variables, but they at least do um, can translate across people and cultures, I think. And they do, but we need to have a very educated work base, right? So depending on the community you live in or the experiences you had growing up, the generation you were born in, all of these things come into play for your level of knowledge for some of these things that you've described. And so I think it's really important that, again, it all comes back to orientation and continued training. We better make sure that the culture we want in our organization and geographically, where do we live? Are we in New York City? Are we in a little teeny tiny town in the South? We're going to have very different cultures there and what our expectations are, the languages that we use. One example I give that's very simple is I don't care for people using endearments when you haven't put a ring on it. So if you call me honey, sweetie, babe, like all of those kinds of things, you have not earned that right as my vendor, as my, as my supplier to call me those things. But if I lived in the South, the deep South, that is a normal way of addressing people. It's a term of endearment that's very accepted in that area. And so it comes back to knowledge. We've got to make sure that we're giving all of the information that we can to those on those front lines. And I talk often about the fact that common sense is not common. Think about it for a second. There's five things that go into common sense. I'll rattle them off really quickly. The home and where you were raised, the example that you had growing up, how did your parents or guardians treat other people? That became your earliest example of how to treat others. So where you were born, what generation you were born in. So you're younger than I am. You have a different generational values than mine. um, And that's just the way it is. One generation is not better than another. It's just different. Your uh, gender right? So some, some people uh, communicate differently because of, of the gender, your personality, and then the work environment. Where did you used to work? Who did you work next to? Who do you work next to today? They're your role models, whether you realize it or not. So there's no two people out there that have the exact same scenario that developed your entire common sense. So what I have to do when I bring you into my company is teach you what it's going to be here. You can be, behave any way you want in your personal life, but here, when you're working, These are the expectations we have. You'll talk like this, you'll act like this, you'll treat others like this. And if you can't do that, then there isn't a place here for you. Now, it's not gonna be said that bluntly, but that is the core message that we're gonna deliver if you wanna be here. The challenge comes in is when you don't care. If you're like, hey, fine, if, 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 if I can't act the way I want to act, then I'm out of here. I'll, I'll go find another job. Now we start having the turnover is a warm body better than nobody. And now we have an entirely different conversation. 
yeah, culture is obviously such a big part of this and, and finding the people who are going to be uh, a good addition to your culture that help to, um, you know, help it grow and, and be cohesive as a team, uh, but that also are all kind of in alignment about how it is around here, like what, how we're going to treat our customers, et cetera. Um, I wanted to actually ask you about um, the, the, the original customer service mantra and what your take is on it. So the original customer service mantra, probably the first one that most of us have ever heard mm-hmm. is, is always right. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that idea? Customer is not always right but we have to make them feel like they are. Okay, go on. So again, healthcare is a great example. There are times when you wanna do something that I cannot allow you to do for a variety of reasons. It's not good for you, it's not acceptable in this environment, so I can't allow, so this is an example. Smokers who wanna smoke in the hospital, right? You wanna be able to smoke while you're visiting your mothers in the hospital, and you're mad that we won't let you smoke in the hospital, right? You're not right. So the customer can demand all they want that I should have the right to do this, we're going to have to provide you with space where you can do that and it'll be outside the hospital walls. So that's a, just a really simple example that everybody can relate to. I do not think the customer is always right, but I do think that we can choose words that make them feel understood, to make them feel heard, to make them feel like we care and that we're trying to meet them halfway on whatever their situation is. But I feel like sometimes if we always cave to the complainer, all we're doing is growing bigger complainers. If I fuss about this enough, they will do something. They will cave. They will give me free dessert. They will, you know, rotate my tires for free. The louder I complain, the more I get. I work a lot in travel and hospitality, and hospitality deals with this all the time. People complaining because the TV doesn't work in their room, and now they want the room for half price. And so it's just constant, you know, balancing at complaints with with monetary um, reciprocation in some kind. So. Cards on the table. I am an absolute customer service nightmare. I'm a diva. I am the type that will turn right to social media and complain and and complain and bitch and moan. Uh, I'm not indiscriminate about it. I'm not like, you know, my pizza is cold and I'm just going to take to Twitter and start ripping on the pizza place. But if like, I feel like I'm truly wronged by a, uh, an organization, they haven't, you know, done right by me. They deliberately chose to shut it down and say, well, it's our policy and we can't help you. And they don't try to do anything to satisfy me. I will go out to social media and be the worst. Um, and I think that that's probably kind of to the point you made about like rotating the tires for free. If somebody complains enough, we're raising, um, you know, a generation of complainers. The other side of it is that if we provided better customer service, not just free stuff, but if we learned how to better communicate with people, better deal with their uh, concerns in a way where it's not just, it's our policy, sorry, we can't help you. Uh, we're just going to screw you over. I think we would also see a lot less of that. But I guess the the kind of bigger point is I'm thinking of, you know, restaurants and all of these other different types of places where customers are just free to be absolute jerks. And typically the the establishment will say things along the lines of like the customer's always right. We got to make them feel right, whatever. How do we, I guess this is kind of the point I want to wrap up on since this is what you do. This is what you work in. You work in customer service, trying to get organizations to understand how to do it better, how to provide better customer service. How do we make sure that more people's hands above and beyond just everyone should read your book, which they should? Well, I think that the uh, thing that we really have to focus on is the consistency and the listening. And if people are on, are you picking up that banging 
Yeah, it's cool. There's now somebody on the side of my house. So here's an example. We can go live with this right now. There is somebody who is showing up at my house that they have not been invited to do whatever it is they're doing. I have a dog that I'm trying to keep happy while we're talking. And all they had to do was call and warn me, whatever it is that they're doing. And so that really wraps us up very quickly. And that all I need is to be heard and for to, to, to know what's going on and that you are realizing how your behavior is impacting my behavior, whether it's the cold pizza or the service person knocking on the side of my house. Yeah. <laughs> well, excellent place to, uh, to wrap up with you. Uh, you have been a fabulous guest, as your last name would tell us that you would be. Uh, your book is phenomenal. Everyone should go and pick up a, uh, a copy of the Tencent Decision. Uh, but this is the point in the show where I just want to give you a little bit of time to talk uh, whatever about you are, uh, you want to share with people where people can go be social with you, where they can pick up a copy of your book, where they can pick up a free chapter. Whatever it is that you want to promote, now's your time in the show to, to talk about whatever you want. Well, they can find everything they need at lauriegust.com, and I spell it L-A-U-R-I-E, and then G-U-E-S-T. My social media handles are there, and link to buy the book, um, it's all right there, so we keep it easy. And really, thanks for having me. It's a, we could talk all day. I know it. Yeah, we totally could, but you have a house situation to deal with and a dog situation. Uh, but I'm sure next time we need to talk about customer service, which I think I'm going to be doing an episode on customer service on my new podcast that I'm launching called Rogue. So we'll have to talk there and we're going to unlock the superpowers behind it. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I think this was an awesome episode. It was really great to talk to you. And if I had to say it was anything, I guess I would say it's shareable. Wait, don't leave. If you've never listened to my fancy outro... Do it just once for me, please. Okay, if you enjoy Shareable and you find it valuable, there's a few ways that you can support the show. One, you can share it on social media, which I strongly encourage. I mean, it's literally the name of the show, Shareable. Two, you can review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Overcast user, as many of my listeners are, make sure to click that star button on the episodes that you like. The third way that you can support the show is by blogging about it or discussing it on your own podcast or even by making a YouTube video where you talk about one of the episodes. And then the final way that you can support the show is by supporting it directly on Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes. Now, before I let you go, I want to tell you about one other thing, shareable.fm, where this podcast is hosted. Do you have a podcast or know someone that has a podcast that you think is particularly, I don't know, shareable? Well, send them to shareable.fm to apply to be on the network. Shows that are selected not only get added to the site and in some cases to the Shareable FM radio podcast, but we also bring together the best tips, tricks, and tactics for promoting your show and growing listenership. And for our headliner and feature shows, we provide fully outsourced social advertising support. So leave the uh, promotion to us, okay? So give it a look, and if you want to find some new and interesting shows, or if you just want additional exposure for your own show, or know someone who would benefit, please let them know about it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Shareable. I sincerely appreciate it, and this show would mean absolutely nothing without you, the listener. So thank you, and I hope to see you back for the next one. Goodbye for now. <laughs>